Well, welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by my friend Michael Sacasas, who's an Associate Director of Educational Programming at the Christian Studies Center in Gainesville, Florida. We talk about the philosophy of technology and some of the most influential writers and thinkers in this area from the past. Michael Sacasas earned his MA in Theological Studies from Reform Theological Seminary in 2002. He was later a doctoral candidate at the University of Central Florida, studying the relationship between technology and society with a particular focus in the works of Hannah Arendt. Along the way, he taught at a variety of settings, including serving as a school administrator and writing extensively on technology and society. He's an associate fellow of ethics and culture at the Greystone Theological Institute, where for three years he serves as the director of the Center for Study of Ethics and Technology. So now let's join our conversation. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about what started you on this path of studying philosophy and ethics of technology? Yeah, glad to be here, and uh, I'd be happy to do so. The um, I think the first time that I began thinking uh, more deeply about the impact of technology on our moral lives and society uh, stemmed from a reading of Craig Gay's uh, The Way of the Modern World, which I was assigned uh, during my master's program at, at RTS back in probably, I think, 1999 at that point. And um, Gay, who is a sociologist at I forget, Regent, I believe, actually, uh, had written a book essentially giving a, a sociological analysis of modern society and the way it impacted belief and faith and practice. And so one of the chapters that he wrote uh, was on science and technology. And it was there that you know I first was introduced to many of the um, thinkers that have gone on to be really influential for me in, in the way that I think about technology and society. And so that was really the, the beginning of that. And, um, and it was an interest that I, I continued to cultivate over the years. And then uh, while I was in my uh, doctoral program, that was more or less the, the focus was trying to understand the relationship between society and technology and particularly modern technology and the way that it shapes um, our politics, our moral lives, uh, our economic um, order, et cetera. Well, for those of us who might not have been able to dive into a lot of the philosophy of technology and some of its leading thinkers, who are some of these names that we should be aware of and why are they important? So I'll say that I, you'll get maybe a slightly different answer from me than you might get from others in the field at the moment. And the reason for that is that I, I try to advocate for the importance, the ongoing significance and relevance of some older thinkers uh, who, in some respects, uh, have fallen out of fashion. In some cases, their work um, might be experiencing a little bit of a revival, uh, but whose insights, I think, uh, remain really important, really vital, uh, who saw many of the um, trends unfolding that we now grapple with, uh, in some respects, were ahead of their time and their concerns. Um, so there are two thinkers in particular that have been really important to me. Uh, Jacques Ellul is one. Uh, he was a, a French Protestant uh, polymath, uh, a rather remarkable individual 
who was an early and mid 20th century uh, thinker primarily. He uh, died in 1992, I think, or 94. And he, especially writing from an explicitly Christian a uh, place of Christian conviction uh, has been useful for me as I think about how the moral life and the spiritual life intersect with our technological order. His writing divides pretty neatly. He writes sociological books analyzing society and technology, and then he writes sort of theological books on the other hand, but always intending for these two to be read together. Uh, so he's he's a, a bit dense in some cases, especially his best-known book, uh, The Technological Society, is, is a fat book and, and not exactly necessarily easy to get through, but I think uh, it remains really valuable. And the other is Ivan Illich. Uh, Ivan Illich, who is best known for his critique of these major industrial age institutions, um, particularly schooling and medicine, but also transportation, the transportation industry. And Illich's work was extremely popular during the 1970s and then kind of fell off the radar for many people, uh, in part because his critique was so uh, so radical in the sense, um, you know, in the etymological sense of radical, that it got down to the roots and and tackled some aspects of modern society that most people, even those who might be critical of, of other aspects, would have found to be the strengths of modern society. Something like modern medicine or the modern um, the modern school, or the modern educational project, and and Illich also um, was a Roman Catholic priest, although. Uh, or about midway through his career as such, um, he fell into a, a bit of controversy regarding some of his views and was never uh, defrocked, but nonetheless had uh, vowed not to sort of operate in the capacity of, uh, of, of, a, um, of an ordained priest, but remained, I think, very, very thoughtful, very loyal, very um, uh, a man of faith who saw contemporary society and understood, I think, some of the institutional dynamics and how that the ramifications of those dynamics for the life of the individual, but also the life of, of the community. And so those two thinkers, Jacques Ellul, Ivan Illich, uh, for me have been particularly important. Uh, there are others that um, might be slightly more familiar. Neil Postman comes to mind, uh, who's in some respects a great popularizer of um, a media ecological approach to new media technology. I, I remain um, convinced that Marshall McLuhan was was also an important thinker with valuable insights into our situation. Albert Boardman, who's a contemporary uh, philosopher, uh, although now retired, I think has also helped us understand uh, the dynamics of, of contemporary technological culture and its impact on on moral and spiritual formation. So those those are some of the names. There are others, but but that's a, a short list of names that I found uh, especially valuable um, in my own thinking. Yeah, I know a lot of people, when you think of technology and thinking about technology, ethics, and society, often we revert to newer books, thinking that they'll have the insights that we need to really navigate a lot of these things. But as you said, so many of these older thinkers and older philosophers were very ahead of their time. So much of what they wrote, um, I've spent a lot of time the last few months kind of diving into Jacques Ellul's thought, especially the technological society, and just really benefited from it. So many of the insights that he was making in light of, 
you know, microwaves and the beginning of the art, artificial intelligence, even before the internet, are directly applicable to some of the debates that we're having today over the role of social media in society and and such. And I'd love to have you back on the podcast sometime to talk more about Jacques Ellul. I'll have lots of questions and lots of insights into some of the things that he was writing and thinking about. But I want to drill down on a couple of those thinkers specifically, um, I know you've spent a good deal of time kind of working in and thinking through a lot of Ivan Illich's thought. I wanted to uh, go a little bit deeper on him. So can you give listeners a little bit more insight to who he was and some of his major works and what's kind of one one or two of his main arguments? Sure. So Ivan Illich is a, a really interesting and also controversial figure. Uh, he was a, a brilliant mind by all accounts. He was also very gifted linguistically. Uh, he, he was conversed in eight to 10 uh, foreign languages. Uh, he lived in various parts of the world throughout his career, cultivated friendships in each of these areas, and was especially gifted in bringing people together. And, and we, I can say a little bit more about that in just a moment. But he began his um, career as a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, rose quickly through the hierarchy, um, and was probably uh, on his way to a, to a career in the in the Roman hierarchy uh, when he realized that that just wasn't the direction he wanted to go, and so he he disembarked for the United States, and he came uh, to the United States to I believe it was to to Harvard or maybe it was actually Princeton uh, to study the work of Albert Magnus, uh, a medieval philosopher, and and so he wanted to sort of pursue this sort of quiet scholarly life. It seems at that point. And then he became attuned to the plight of recently arrived, this is the 1950s, recently arrived Puerto Rican immigrants in New York, and then became immersed in that community, um, began to see the, um, the hardship of these Roman Catholic parishioners from Puerto Rico coming to the United States to a foreign environment in many ways, to a foreign church culture, even though they were still within the Roman Catholic Church. And that set his, his career off in another path. He he eventually settled. He was in Puerto Rico for a while as an administrator of the Catholic University there, and he settled in Cuernavaca, Mexico, where he created what was called the Center for International Documentation, or CDOC. And it basically became a, a, a kind of a clearinghouse for various sorts of intellectuals and scholars and writers and thinkers uh, that uh, Ivan would have over. And it was out of those conversations that some of his most famous uh, work in the 1970s kind of came out of out of that context. Um, de-schooling society is probably his most uh, famous work. And uh, there are other uh, works from that period, like Tools for Conviviality and Energy and Equity, um, which at that point... His focus, and this is one of the major themes of his work, his focus was on, the way I would put it is, is, is like this, the way in which modern institutions de-skill human beings, not just in the way um, that we ordinarily talk about de-skilling in sort of labor market contexts where laborers are, are de-skilled from particular crafts or particular um, skills that they had learned along the way and and thus are, are rendered less useful to the labor market, right? But it. it it really extended to a kind of social de-skilling. And so there are these twin uh, realities that Illich identified. One is where the individual becomes more and more dependent on institutions and where institutions, in his view, begin to exist, not initially, but sometimes they come to a point where they they exist chiefly for their own uh, perpetuation, right? And so what they require are people who are increasingly dependent on their wares, on their services. And so on the one hand, you have individuals that grow increasingly dependent on these institutions. 
and then less dependent on one another. And so it's not just that we don't get to be these, um, you know, robust individualists that can kind of manage life on our own and are, are um, um, able to, to take care of our own affairs. And it, it was more that communities were, were weakened because we lost a measure of interdependence. In, in other words, the, to the degree that we outsourced our dependence to institutions, to that same degree, we were unable to depend on one another. And, and that, in his view, had you know, profound social and, and individual con- personal consequences. So there's this one element of his work uh, from the late 60s through the early 70s where he focused on these sorts of uh, malformed relationships to institutions. Again, not just sort of the, the big and bad ones that we might tend to focus on, but even things like schooling and medicine, which in, in his view had crossed, a, both of these had crossed a threshold where for, for a long period of time, their expansion and their growth had been beneficial and had, had uh, fruits that were laudable and, um, and valuable. Uh, but after growing to a certain point, um, had, beca- had crossed what he called a second watershed, where now they became self-destructive. Um, they no longer you know, bore fruit commensurate to their place in, in our lives. And um, the other, uh, so a couple of other aspects of his work that I think are really valuable is his focus on, on limits. Uh, limits is also an important theme throughout this part of his, um, of his career, where he recognized that and this is kind of hand in hand with his thinking on institutions. At a certain point, institutions can only do more than offer more of themselves. Uh, I was thinking about this recently with regards to Facebook and the public sphere. The, the one thing Facebook cannot ever bring itself to do, of course, is to shut itself down, right? Or or to say that we're going to offer you less of ourselves, right? There, there are only tweaks that allow it to give more of itself to society. And so that idea that, you know, past certain thresholds, all that institutions or technologies can do is give you more of the same for Illich was really destructive because very often what we needed was to mind a more human scale, a more human scale of interaction, a more human scale um, with regards to our built environment um, with regards to our institutions. And so if we didn't mind these limits, then everything north of these limits was going to be uh, in one way or another damaging, damaging to the environment, damaging to social institutions, damaging to families and individuals. And so this, um, this critique of institutions, this parallel line uh, of thought with regards to limits, and then especially uh, throughout his career, but especially late in his, in his work, uh, there's there's a pronounced place for hospitality and for friendship, uh, uh, something that I think is really valuable. And uh, I re- recently wrote something about this for um, for the website Breaking Ground. And the way that Illich, I think, thought of renewal, you know, how do things get better? How do we move beyond this? Uh, was to focus on uh, what I think of as a, a recovery of a sense of our common humanity that can only happen in the context of um, of, of small-scale human interactions, face-to-face human interactions. Illich's work took a, a turn towards an interest in, in media technology uh, towards the end of his career, uh, and he was, he was critical of the way in which a lot of contemporary communication technologies disassociate the body from the act of communication uh, so that, you know, as we're doing now, and, and there are some benefits to this, of course, right, there are these 
communications that are based on telepresence, we're able to speak at a remove from one another. But un- unless, in his view, we made the space, found the time, uh, found the, the capacity to meet one another face-to-face, meet our neighbors face-to-face, grow more dependent upon our neighbors rather than global oversized institutions and corporations, um, that we would not find uh, healing or we would not find a, a way back from where we are uh, as a society. And, and this is, uh, you know, rising from his work in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, um, so certainly resonates today and, and to my mind, you know, is all the more urgent today. So those are, I think, three really valuable themes that, that run through his work. Uh, you know, I always say with regards to Illich, you're sure not to agree with everything he says, um, but he's provocative in the best sense. Uh, he makes, I think, he makes you think in part because he he questions what even our usual critiques don't uh, don't touch the assumptions that run very deeply and, and always in a very unique way. And so uh, he's, a, I think, a, a very valuable conversation partner, a very valuable voice to have in your head. I know you pick up on a lot of these themes in a recent essay that you wrote for the New Atlantis called The Analog City and the Digital City. And we're going to link to this in the show notes for listeners. Um, but can you give a little bit of an overview of that argument and why you decided to write that piece? Yeah, definitely. That that piece was written initially as a talk that I gave at a conference um, that was co-hosted by the New Atlantis and by the Center for the Study of Statesmanship at Catholic University. And the theme was um, democracy and the internet. And so the, the question that I was trying to get at there, or, or the, the level of analysis that I was trying to get at, at that piece is to understand the way in which the internet or digital technologies more broadly, we're not just changing the way we do politics, not just changing the tools at our disposal, uh, but possibly even changing very foundational assumptions that our political work, our political uh, action, or our political um, uh, activity would have been based on. And so, you know, for example, one of the things that I tackle in that piece is um, how we think about speech. And it's it's obviously a, a highly contested area of our political discourse right now. And there are ways in which, you know, I think if you're if you're older than say 35 or 40, I don't know, there there's a critique of free speech that seems really stunning and, and kind of um, which is uh, something we would not have expected uh, to hear in American public discourse. And the sources of that, I think, have something to do with the way in which the word, the digitized word, differs from the word that we experience through the medium of print. And so, again, I I kind of owe a lot to uh, the tradition of media ecology stemming from McLuhan and Walter Ong and Neil Postman and others, who I think understood that when you when you change a communication technology, you're not just adding something to the world as it is, but you are kind of radically altering the existing world. Um, you know, Postman uh, says in in one of his books that Europe after the printing press wasn't old Europe plus the printing press; it was something new altogether. And so, likewise, you know, I I think we can say the same thing about the American political sphere. American politics plus the internet isn't the pre-digital politics plus something. It is something new altogether, right? The idea is on the model of, a, of an ecosystem. When you introduce some new species into a natural ecosystem, it reorders, it can reorder the whole ecosystem, even leading to its collapse. 
And so likewise, when you introduce a new media technology that becomes a default mode of communication, of uh, human social interaction, of the way that we see and perceive the world, of the rate of information that we have access to, these, have, uh, these changes have profound consequences. And, and it's not just that they are allowing people to sort of do politics in a new way. It's that, again, they, they are restructuring our sense of identity, our sense of self, the way that we think the individual relates to the group. And so these are, again, uh, um, what I would say more foundational questions and elements of the relationship between the internet and, and politics than what I ordinarily see addressed. And these were the sorts of, of, of questions. This was the level of, of analysis I was trying to get at in that piece. Um, and admittedly, with, with you know relative success, readers can sort of judge how well I did that. I certainly had the sense of doing something that was still provisional and still subject to to critique and and to advance um, simply because in many ways we're we're really just beginning to see the effects of of digitization, uh, widespread digitization on on our on our public culture over the last decade or so. And I really do recommend listeners to check out that piece. Again, you can grab a link to that in the show notes. But I want to shift gears a little bit and talk to parents. We have a number of parents who listen to Weekly Tech and engage about how how to help prepare their children uh, for this new age of technology, where it seems like a lot of the rules are being rewritten. Uh, there's a lot of questions and doubts and fears even with technology. Now, you have two daughters. I have two young sons. And so both of us think a lot about kind of this next generation and raising them up and the way of the Lord. Uh, what are some of the things that you're doing even in your family as you're talking about technology with your girls, uh, that you're talking about technology in your family, about how to think better about technology rather than just reverting to issues of screen time per se, which are valuable, but really don't encapsulate the fullness of the way that technology is shifting our society and specifically our families? Yeah, that, that's such a great question. And I'll start by saying that the question of technology and, and kids say, which is such an important one, where I'd like to start with that is with, not with technology per se, but with some positive vision of what we want for our family, or right? what do we envision uh, as the good life? What do we? What are the virtues that we want to see cultivated in our children? What kind of relationship to to the natural world, to creation, to other human beings do we want to see flourish within them? In other words, I think it's important to to lead with a positive vision, because so often what you end up getting when we as parents think about technology and it, it is often it's reactionary. And so it ends up being a series of, of restrictions or limitations often grounded in some intuitions that are perfectly fair and valid uh, that, that are, you know, intuiting that there's something disordered in the way that we're relating to technology. Uh, but again, remains sort of reactionary and, and oftentimes without well-articulated reasoning or motives and sometimes rather arbitrary. With regards to questions like you know, screen time, for example, I really do think this is in the uh, realm of wisdom. Uh, in other words, that there are no uh, hard and fast rules for this. There's no ideal time right, that can be prescribed for every child under every circumstance. And, and so families have to begin with, with some vision of who they want their children to be, what kind of family they want, uh, family life they want to cultivate. And then to begin to think about how their technologies are sort of intersecting with these values, with these aims, with these stated uh, goals and objectives. 
Um, and, and so we always need to do uh, some combination of, on the one hand, limiting and restricting some activities, some actions, access to certain devices, perhaps. But at the other, on the other hand, also practice positive practices that will cultivate the, the virtues that we seek. So, you know, I confess that a lot of my thinking along these lines is sort of grounded in how I think about moral formation, which is sort of along, you know, the classically virtue, the classical virtue ethic approach, right? That we we have virtues that are the result of habits and practices that instill them in us. And, and so we need to cultivate these virtues and also be attentive to practices that are currently structuring our lives that may undermine or hinder our our cultivate the cultivation of virtues that we aspire to. And so, for instance, if we want to be patient, um, then on the one hand, we probably ought not to take every possible shortcut that is offered to us and every and, and sort of buy into every time-saving opportunity or default efficiency as a value or speed as a value for our activities and our actions. And at the same time, then we need to do some things in our lives that are going to slow us down, that are going to make us a little bit more deliberate, a little bit more thoughtful. And so how we, there are all sorts of ways of configuring our technologies. And we should think about technology as parents, not just in terms of our devices, um, but uh, the whole sort of structure of our, 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 what I think of as sort of the material infrastructure uh, of our moral and social lives. And I think, you know, this is... Um, one other consideration that I think is pretty important. We need to recognize that there are these, there's a, a level of thinking about technology where we're focused on a particular device, what we do with it. But then we also need to think about technologies as systems, um, systems that are ordering everything about our society, right? That, that the way that we relate right now to the retail industry, say, where it's, it's not that we go to a store to make purchases at discrete moments, but that at any moment uh, we can sort of log on to Amazon and and shop, as it were, for our needs and have these products delivered. This is a system. It's not a discrete tool. It's a system that has consequences. But then lastly, there's sort of a way, uh, a more abstract sense in which technology gets into us, into our minds, into our way of, of relating to the world, where we begin to see the world as just a space for mastery and control, where, where we uh, try to master our circumstances, control as many factors as possible in our lives. And what's being pushed out is the capacity to receive the world as a gift, uh, something that we're fundamentally grateful for, something that escapes our control, uh, but, but in, a, in a way that is commensurate with our status as creatures rather than gods. Um, and so there, there's that temptation that I think is built into the to the larger technological order of which we are all a part, a temptation to approach the world as just the, the raw material for our projects of self-mastery and self-realization. And so helping our children, on the other hand, begin to, to wonder at the world, to see the world as the theater of God's glory. That, I think, is really critical. And, and there are many ways, I'm sure, to, to cultivate that spirit. Um, but it's something that's a little bit deeper and, and more expansive than just the question of how we regulate devices, say. So, so again, those are just some of the ways in which I want to make that question a bigger question than the way we tend to think about it. Um, and then recognize that within that space, I think there are a lot of wise and faithful ways of, of configuring our relationship to technology. And I hope that that helps and makes some sense.
there's a lot to chew on there, obviously. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. to chew on throughout this podcast. And I just really appreciate a lot of the work that you've done, um, especially in your really helpful newsletter, The Convivial Society, which I will have a link in the show notes for listeners to sign up for. Um, but as we close out our time today, what are like maybe one or two helpful books that might kind of introduce us to some of these thinkers or some of these kind of larger concepts of technology that you would recommend for first-time listeners? Sure, yeah. I I think that Neil Postman's Technopoly is still a really readable, accessible, helpful introduction to a lot of these issues. It was written in 1990 or 91, so some aspects of it are going to feel a little bit dated. There's no robust discussion of the internet as of yet at that point, for example. But the principles he lays out, uh, I think, can certainly still enlighten um, our understanding and help us to think about these issues in a, in, a, in a deeper and more satisfying way. So Neil Postman, the book is Technopoly. Yvonne Illich is a challenging writer, but his, his small book, Tools for Conviviality, is probably the one place that I would sort of refer readers to to, um, to kind of grapple with his thinking. So if, if there was some curiosity about that, then that's certainly uh, one place to go. And then Albert Borgman wrote a book, that collected sort of explicitly theological reflections about technology and the church and the Christian life. And it's called Power Failure. And so that um, that came out probably again in, in the early 2000s, 2003 or 2004. But that I think is also a, a slim and useful book uh, that might that might benefit readers. And and I think readers ought to know too that, that C.S. Lewis, or excuse me, listeners, I should say, they're going to be familiar with the work of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis um, was a was a useful thinker on these questions. And, and his um, thinking about technology is sort of scattered throughout his work. But, but the abolition of man uh, remains really a, a vital text that I think would be useful to Christians trying to think about the place of technology in the world uh, writ large right now. And so those are, those are a handful that come to mind. As 2020 comes to a close, we at the ERLC are really thankful for the many ways that we get to assist churches by helping them to apply the gospel to the moral and ethical questions of the day, and also speaking from our churches as a witness in the public square. This podcast is one of the many ways we do this here at the ERLC. If you've benefited from the content shared on this podcast, would you please consider making a year-end donation? We're supported by the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, but any individual donations that we receive apart from that go to placing ultrasound machines in pro-life pregnancy centers, advocating for religious liberty and human dignity at home and across the globe. You can consider making a year-end donation at erlc.com slash donate. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech and for sharing a lot of these really wise insights with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And I do want to remind listeners, you can sign up to receive Michael's newsletter, which is the Convivial Society, where he digs into a lot of these issues. You can grab a link to sign up down in the show notes as well. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Michael and learn more about the books that we talked about today in the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning, which is designed to help you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day, as well as to stay up to date on a lot of the new technology news. You can sign up for that at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.